Hi everyone. So today is the 10 year anniversary of my mother's death. And I don't know what to feel, honestly. I feel kind of numb. I feel sad. I feel grateful that it's been 10 years because when it happened, it felt like I was in the most pain ever. And I, you know, when you're in it, you can't really imagine feeling joy again. Um, and I wasn't really sure how to mark today. Part of me wanted to just ignore it. Part of me wanted to write this big emotional Facebook post or something like I used to do and I don't really feel like that's right either. So I've just decided I'm gonna have a quiet day and maybe go buy myself a cupcake or coffee or something. But how we're gonna mark it um, on the Dirty Girl feed is we're going to share an interview I did on a different podcast. podcast is called Dying of Laughter, and it's hosted by the amazing, incredible Chelsea London Lloyd. And the whole podcast features interviews with millennial comedians and just funny people with deceased parents or siblings. We did this interview about a year ago, and it's crazy to share it here now. Um, but Chelsea's so awesome. She grew up with two sick parents. Her dad died of ALS. Her mom currently combats stage four breast cancer for the second time. And it felt really great to have this intimate conversation with someone my age who had also lost a parent. So we're going to put that on this feed. You should also subscribe to Dying Laughter because it's really beautiful and fun and enlightening. And, uh, yeah. I love you guys. Something I like to ask everyone is your goldfish moment. And but what I mean by that is, do you remember the first moment where you thought about or conceptualized what death was when you were a child? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I'd have to say probably my grandma died when I was in the fourth grade. And I think that's the first time you realize like, oh, death oh, that means they're done and you don't see them anymore and grandma doesn't cook you cookies anymore. And that's really sad because dad's sad because that's that was daddy's mom. I love my daddy and I want my daddy to have parents. So probably, probably that, yeah. Mm-hmm. I did have goldfish that died, but I didn't really, it didn't make me cry. Oh, see, I called the goldfish moment, but I haven't actually spoken with someone yet who actually had a goldfish. And I had like cats and dogs. So if they were going to die, that was going to be, you know, the big heartbreak. But a goldfish was like, mm-hmm. okay, we'll go back to PetSmart and get another 99-cent goldfish. What was your goldfish named? We had two. They were named Star and Moon. I mean, classic. Good for them. And now they're somewhere with the stars and moon. So it really came full circle. And then we had other fish. And we had five fish and then only... All four of them died, and this is a weird story. Four of them died, and one of them was left. And we're like, well, it's going to die anyway. So we put it in the swimming pool, and me and my dog swam with the last goldfish, which is, like, cute. But that goldfish's last memories are just swimming as fast (laughs) as possible because a giant gold retriever is trying to eat it. (laughs) So... 
was kind of amazing. I, that's a good memory for me. <laughs> I love that so much. Would love to hear a little bit about your upbringing, where you're from, who you lived with, and how you went from childhood through young adulthood and what it was like to experience loss. All right. So I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. I had a two-parent household and a brother, and it wasn't immediately – it took me – how do I say this? <laughs> I wasn't aware that my mom had a drinking problem until I think middle school, and that's when I started realizing all the funny things she was doing is because she was inebriated, and I started being more careful about the people I invited over to my house because I didn't know what they were going to find and I was really embarrassed and she would do very embarrassing things and many times I tried to you know tell her to stop and she she was a very mentally ill person and that's something I can see now but as a kid you're like oh what's wrong with me that mommy doesn't love me you know if mommy loved me she would take care of me better so in Sophomore year of high school, my dad moved out because her drinking was that bad. And at that point, I wasn't able to leave fully. Um, my brother was in college, and my dad moved out so that I could have a safe place to go to. But I still felt very in charge of my mother's health. And she was suicidal a couple times. There was a moment, I guess, where we went to Europe when I was 15 and she tried to get out of the plane over the Atlantic Ocean. There were moments she went to jail once because she was driving drunk when I was in a car seat in the back seat. Wow. She was very ill. And I had a really hard time, you know, separating that. And I felt like I was in charge of her. Part of that came from... Uh, one time when I was in middle school, my dad called me and said, I'm not going to be home till late. Your mom threatened suicide. Can you stay home with her? Can you cancel your plans and stay home with her? So I just internalized that and was like, great, like I'm in charge of mom. And that was in the eighth grade, I think. I took it upon myself to make sure she didn't die. Wow. Um, and between, so my dad moved out and it was just me and my mom. And that's when the drinking got really bad. It was already bad, but that, it was very, very bad. And it was, it would get physical. She, you know, I would come home and I would, we would just scream at each other and she would try to hit me and I would, you know, push her and it was very bad. But I didn't feel like I could tell anybody because I didn't want to be forced to leave because if I left, she would die. And senior, the summer before senior year of high school, I asked my mom if I could have friends over to spend the night. And she said, no, why don't you go spend the night somewhere else? Around like 11 p.m., I ran home to like grab my phone charger and I couldn't find my mom anywhere. Um, but I knew she was home because there was like a candle lit and her phone was plugged in and I just knew she was somewhere in the house. And uh, so I like grabbed my things and I left. I come home the next day and the candle is still lit. Her phone is still left open, like something's off and I can't find her anywhere. Um, I start calling people up. Do you know where she is? Do you know where she is? Again, it's someone, it's a woman with alcoholism. So her disappearing was pretty normalized in my life. Mm. Eventually I would find her. Whether or not she was passed out behind the couch upstairs and I, she just had to wake up or she was 
you know, she just didn't come home that night because she was out with some guy or at her friend's house or whatever. But then that night, my dad calls me and tells me her body is at the bottom of the swimming pool and she's dead. Which was obviously awful. Um, so I've been in, um, I can't think of the name. What's the name? Psychoanalysis, I think is what it's called. I go to therapy four days a week. Wow. And that's I've, incredible. Yeah. And I've been doing that for three years and it saved my life. And I am on a path of healing and I am more able to openly talk about this and realizing that it, it's not my fault, even though I, a big part of me was like, I was home. I, I was literally home when she probably died. Like I couldn't find her. I saw some ripples in the swimming pool, but I thought it was the wind, you know? So stuff like that has haunted me. There's just a whole lot of baggage that comes with being a child of an alcoholic and all the stuff you internalize and, and me having to work through that. Um, which has been very hard, but I'm privileged enough to get proper treatment and it's been life-changing. Wow. Well, I'm, you know, I, I'm so, I'm so in awe of everything that you're saying and I have so much respect for you that you went through this and that you're committed to that level of care now really speaks to your character and that's really admirable and cool that you're doing that. How old were you when she died? 17. What, what was it like for you after the first couple of years after she died? A lot of anger. So much anger. And it started coming out when, I mean, alcoholism is a family illness, so it affects the whole family and everybody deals with it differently and everyone's like oh hush hush you know everyone knew she had a drinking problem but no one wanted to deal with it mm -hmm. and it was just impolite to bring it up after my mom passed I had so much rage at the people around me how could they let this happen to me how could they let me you know survive in this neglectful sometimes abusive atmosphere and all I wanted to do was talk about what happened. And my family was very much like, I, I started a blog and I started writing about these anecdotes that I had dealt with. Amazing. And my family would like anonymously go on the blog and tell me to take it down <gasps> because I was like, what if my grandparents found out? And like, and it, it just became about protecting everybody else but me mm. and me not being allowed to claim my trauma for their sanity purposes and their guilt. They couldn't deal with the guilt. So I had to be quiet. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of anger. And I think I'm definitely less angry now. I'm working through it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to, like, totally put, like, t take them off the hook. Um, right. But I do think enough time has passed that they're starting to deal with their own grief mm -hmm. and controlling me and controlling my grief isn't going to make their grief go away just because they can't deal with it doesn't mean you know that I shouldn't mm, it's very true and I think everyone's on such a different specific path with their grief but it's interesting how the family unit those paths of grief can intersect and intertwine and then pass and then be parallel and then 
across at different places. How has your relationship with your other family members been as of late? Really strong. Again, they've never formally apologized for what they did on my blog, Mm. Um, even though they know that I know it was them and I know that they know that I know, you know. Wow. It's just this big unspoken, which is part of the family illness of secrets and not being able to deal. Um, and in, But I know that they all carry guilt about not being able to protect me and not being able to protect their sister, their, you know, their because they lost someone too. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of guilt around that. And yeah, it's good, but it's not like open. They still can't openly talk about their feelings, which is a shame. Yeah, it's, I think that's so difficult when you want someone to be open about something and they're just not. Like you can't force someone else to talk about something. So that must be challenging for you. And you were saying how you have found, is it a therapy program? Is that what you would call it? Or you said it was called? It's a type of therapy. It's a type of therapy. Okay. So it's basically intensive therapy where you go multiple days a week Mm -hmm. and essentially you're condensing years of therapy into a year or two years or, you know, because you're going so frequently. That's, I mean, I think that's amazing that you... Is that something that you took upon yourself to seek out or how did you get introduced to this and what has the experience been like for you? My dad is a psychiatrist. Oh, interesting. So um, he was always trying to get me back into therapy, um, but I was so busy. You, you see, I have a lot of projects going on and that's probably me trying to push everything away <laughs> in one aspect. And after I graduated from college, my depression just really was full throttle because there was nothing to distract me from my pain. And he, you know, helped me find a therapist that did his, that did psychoanalysis, which is different than cognitive behavioral therapy, which a lot of therapists do. Um, And then my therapist suggested, you know, upping how many times a week I go, um, probably because he could see that I had a lot of shit to work through. Yeah. And, um, my dad supported me because we're privileged enough to have the means mm-hmm. and my therapist was privileged or was able to like lessen the cost and work with us so that I could do this and it's changed my life for the better. Do you see the same person every day or is it different people? It's one guy four days a week. Oh my gosh love yes for this guy. This, I'm I'm into this. This is amazing. And you obviously have a close rapport with him, and you found someone that you really uh, like. Is that the right word? Trust? Yeah. It's just un, unlocking all these developmental issues and all these things that were stunted in mm-hmm. my development because of all of my trauma. So I thought therapy was just dealing with your trauma, but it's not just that. It's all the other ways that it's infected. Uh, it's affected your life and affected my ability to trust people, my ability to form healthy relationships, my ability to do X, Y, Z. And now that I know it, I can work on it. And I'm very much like in my skin now and not as, you know, 
afraid, I guess. It's really cool. So I, I think we all know, you know, there's some people that are really hurting and they haven't for whatever reason been able to or haven't wanted to or known how to seek out a safe space to uncover what is underneath. And that's, yeah, I find that challenging when someone isn't able or willing to uncover. So I think that's really, really amazing that you're doing that. What, um, with your experience, seeing your mom go through everything she went through, is there one particular thing that stands out as being the most challenging? And is there one thing that sticks out as being perhaps uplifting or rewarding or something you learned about yourself that's interesting to you in some way? It's difficult because it's somebody that I've had, someone has passed that I had a really difficult, complicated relationship with. It would be easier, I think, if I just loved her or if I just hated her, mm. but it's someone who I both simultaneously loved and hated and brought me joy and an insane amount of pain. Um, what was the question? <laughs> Sorry, no worries. <laughs> I was kind of a long-winded, but I was wondering if there's one thing that stuck out as being the most challenging and then if there was one nugget of goodness or a positive takeaway that you had. So a two-part question. The most challenging thing would be um, I don't know how to <laughs> there was a there was a few moments when she was drunk where some borderline molestation occurred and I don't feel like I can claim it as molestation because it wasn't I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out how to deal with, you know, your mother touching your breasts when she's drunk. Um, I just don't know how to work through that. And I'm working through that now. And that's been really challenging. And also just the, you know, like there's a moment where um, when I first got my period, she like sat me on the toilet and like forced a tampon in me and like like made me spread my legs and like you know you you remember how painful your first tampon was mm -hmm. it was her like shoving it in me and me crying and her not you know just very like challenging things to work through and I have countless anecdotes like that and those are hard to deal with those are hard to work through. Those are hard to talk about. And those are the types of things my family didn't want to hear because it challenged their uh, experience of her and I'm sure fed their feelings of guilt because I, you know, yeah. So that's the journey I'm on to work through and uh, I guess the uplifting thing is that it's a learning that it's okay to have mixed feelings and it's okay. I don't have to go through therapy to decide that I love her and totally forgive her and I'm done, you know? Mm -hmm. It's okay to feel both anger and love and 
joy and really miss her. Even though that's sounds crazy when you hear all the <laughs> anecdotes, but it's true. Yeah. Thank you so much for opening up about that. So I know like that story could really positively impact and help someone who's going through something similar. And on that note, I was wondering what advice you would have for someone who might be in high school right now experiencing something similar. I didn't find Al-Anon until senior year of college, which is the sister program to Alcoholics Anonymous. Al-Anon is for families and friends of alcoholics. And that was, I didn't know that was even existed. Um, So if you're going through something similar, that is an incredible free resource. Uh, You can Google it and find five meetings within five miles of you because they're so everywhere. Amazing. Um, And that was really, that was a big moment for me. Do they have groups, do you know, specifically for people who are younger or in certain age brackets? Uh, They do. They have, the one I started in was at my university. um, At LMU. At LMU. Mm -hmm. And I was chatting with the the doctor on campus because I went for a cold or something. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, told me to come in. And so I went every single week after that. So they have different, um, the Al-Anon website, if you just Google Mm Al-Anon, A-L space A-N-O-N. There's like young people's groups, so people under 40, people under 30. There's specific adult children of alcoholics, which I I think pertains to me more than a spouse of someone who's an alcoholic. Certainly. That's just a different dynamic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I I tried one in Tarzana, and that was – it was like 150 people there. And wow. And way too many for me personally. I'm not going to – you know, versus I tried a young person's one and it was like 30 people there and they were all under 30 and that was felt better. But I still feel like I need a meeting that's adult children of alcoholics just because it is a different dynamic. And I have a judgment about, I guess, uh, a different relationship than somebody who has a friend or has a spouse or has a sister, which is still incredibly painful, but it's just different. Mm-hmm. Because you were really young when you first started to pick up on signs of her alco- of her alcoholism. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what was that like for you when you were, you know, in eighth grade? Did you know much about what alcohol was and what it did? And how did you come to terms with that? Was there someone you could talk to then? She was a functioning alcoholic, uh, which meant she would binge drink like once a month once every few months, as opposed to coming home every day and she's drunk, mm-hmm. which made me feel like, was it really alcoholism? You know, like not feeling like I can claim that mm-hmm. and not feeling like my trauma is real because I'm not getting, you know, beat up every day by a drunk dad, you know, having an idea of what alcoholism is mm-hmm. and just not having it match up. So my dad is a psychiatrist. He's a really intelligent person. And the way he described it to me, you know, tried to explain it to me, ended up doing more harm than good. Um, 
you know, reasons why mommy may drink. Mommy had a lot of trauma growing up because she had a a teenage pregnancy and she, you know, had birth. She gave birth when she was like 14 or 15. Oh, wow. To my stepsister or half sister um, who's 30 years old. No, 18 years older than me. Wow. And it was very much like, oh, mommy drinks because she's has a lot of trauma from that. And you're growing up and you're almost the age mommy was when she got pregnant. So when mommy looks at you, she sees herself. And of course, I'm like, oh, great. I'm the reason mom's drinking, you know, Um, not at all what my dad meant. But that's a way young, confused kid interprets it. And um, just him trying to feeling like he was really explaining it away like oh you know I know she's drinking a lot but it's because she has a lot of pain and me feeling like what about my pain (laughs) aren't I valid everybody um so we've you know I've had to deal with my anger towards my father too which I didn't know I had until getting into therapy and realizing oh there is there is some anger there have you been able to talk to your dad more recently about all of this or is that still something that is in flux? And Yeah, we have a really healthy relationship now. We work really hard on it. Um, I'm able to voice all these things and he's able to hear it. And also he's remarried to uh, a woman who was also a child of an alcoholic. So oh. if he doesn't get it, she tells him what's up, you know, like her and I have very similar, have some similar experiences. So, you know, she stands up for me a lot of the time saying, well, of course, because you weren't there because, you know, and she's sort of like angry on my behalf in a lot of ways. Um, so that's been a really like fortuitous meeting, I guess, of this woman who's in my life now who loves me very much. That's really Amazing. So you have a good relationship with her, it sounds like. I do, yeah. That's really cool. Or I don't, I don't know if cool is the right word, but it's really something. Special. Special, yeah, meaningful. Do you do you have a relationship with your half-sister? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't talk super often because she's in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. where my mother is from. Okay. Um, but, you know, she was she met my mom she reconnected with my mom when I was six months old um so she's always been in my life and my mom was really struggling with having her a part of our lives and again my mom was also pretty mentally ill but nobody was self-medicating nobody like really knew or which is such bullshit everybody knew nobody was dealing with it Mm. um and she couldn't get help she refused help even though she was a nurse and she you know it's all ironic but um my half-sister started cutting us out um because she wanted so badly to be close to my mom and her and my mom went on a trip and my mom was really uh promiscuous which we didn't find out until after she died about all the people she cheated on my dad with. And in that trip, she like cheated on my dad with a woman 
in front of my half-sister and my half-sister was really like confused and just sort of backed away at that point and wow um yeah and that's always like my dad's thing was like if he knew that she was that she was cheating on him he would have left but it's all like yeah and a lot of people did know and nobody said anything because it was a trust thing and Mm. manipulation and all things that could have been avoided if we communicated with each other I think oh my gosh life is so complicated it's I mean it's just it's fascinating I always something I ask myself and I'm curious what you think why do you think it's easier for people to keep going about their day-to-day as opposed to opening up and asking these tough questions uh Fear of pain, fear of rejection. I think I know I was taught my mom was a hard ass and I was not taught that on the other side of vulnerability there can be compassion and there can be love and acceptance. I was taught vulnerability gets you nowhere. You suck it up. You keep going. You shut it down. Uh, Buck up, she'd say to me. I'd be sobbing. She'd tell me to buck up. Um, so I think a lot of people don't see value (laughs) in vulnerability. Is there some comedic aspect that you found either related to this experience or to grief in general? Any particularly funny or strange things? You're like, well, that was so something I just have to laugh. Um, well, I know (laughs) when my mom died, I feel like... I feel like when she died, I made a lot of dead mom jokes. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> um, just uh, trying to laugh because laughing was easier than crying. And probably on one level, just not being able to deal with my feelings. I have this image of being at my mom's funeral and there being like an open casket and my friends were saying something, and I was like, come on, guys, not in front of my mom. <laughs> Which is like really shocked everybody else, but made me laugh. Um, and yeah, I try less to, I try to laugh it off, laugh it off less more as an adult um, because it's not always funny. And It's the same thing with, like, self-deprecating humor, like, just trying to step away from making fun of myself. There's probably a healthier way (laughs) to deal with things. Um, But sometimes it is just funny. Like, that was just a funny joke. Sorry if it made everyone uncomfortable, but I'm not sorry. Mm -hmm. How about you? Um, (laughs) That's a a good question. That really interests me when you said sometimes there's a healthier way. I think... As someone, you know, we're both artists and in the comedy space, it's a very interesting line. And it's a line that I personally really find myself pushing. I personally do go there. And I think it's really important to have an outlet and a safe space to be dealing with what's underneath. Yeah, I agree. I think you can totally play with it as long as you're also dealing with it. I think a lot of people make jokes and that's it. 
Yes. And it's so interesting. I, I, I see a lot of stand-up shows. I do a lot of stand-up. And people that do bring up either illness, death, terminal illness, mental illness, really deep stuff, it's so fascinating to me because sometimes it's in really good taste and it's really freaking funny. And I'm like, that person is brilliant. And sometimes it's so raw and it's it's not quite there yet and it's it's uncomfortable. It's like, wow, that person's really going through something right now and I find it fascinating. And you know what? If 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 it's helping them in that moment to go there, you know, there's something to be said about that, but it helped me. I know it did. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's also so important to have a safe space. I think also, you know, in stand-up when someone's like, someone, my mom died last month, whoo, I'm immediately, I'm like, okay, last month, it's just, it's so raw that I find it uncomfortable. Whereas, like, my dad, it's been eight years, and I just started bringing it up in stand-up. And it's far enough away away that it there's this distance but even then you know comedy can be offensive and everything could offend someone in some way and I think we all know people that like you said self they're just self-deprecating all the time and it's past the point where it's funny it's to the point where you're like okay that person is lacking self-worth in some way which is hilarious no I'm just kidding (laughs) so um, yay for comedy and therapy but especially therapy um so um, to wrap it up, before I ask you a couple questions about your career and what's going on next for you, I was thinking if there's any um, any last takeaways that you wanted to share about your experience. And you'd mentioned advice before that I thought was really valuable. So if someone has an alcoholic parent right now, any last words for that person? Um, you're not alone. Oh, my God. How many times I was sitting there thinking I was the only person going through this and how common it is and not just not necessarily just alcoholic parents but people who abuse substances all substances um you are so not alone oh my gosh it's everybody around you (laughs) knows somebody um and I know there's a lot of shame associated with the illness that you may not talk about it you may not bring it up but there are so many people that want to hear your story that want to help you that want to give you tools to help yourself you know one of the I can't remember the steps of Al-Anon is don't be a doormat and you know stop taking that shit (laughs) which is you can't always do if you're uh, dependent on that person so I know that's really challenging Um, but I see you and you're not alone and your pain is valid and just find a community create community you are loved thank you so much for having me chelsea it was so great hanging with you and chatting about dead parents and stuff (laughs) if you want to hear the full interview go on to dying of laughter's feed you can listen to that wherever you listen to your podcasts dirty girl is produced by me heather ann gottlieb along with Cameron Taggy, Tristan Bankston, and Alex Salem. We are distributed by the Hoo Ha Ha Podcast Network. Our logo was designed by Kevin Laughlin. <laughs>